Thank you for joining us today for another episode of the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. We are excited to welcome back Dr. Karina Gebahar and Professor Ansgar Bushkes. They will be discussing their recently published manuscript with Editor-in-Chief Professor Nina Ramirez titled Temporal Differences Between Load and Movement Signal Integration in the Sensory Motor Network of an Insect Leg. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Hi, Jamie. And hi, Anska and Corinna. So wonderful to have you back. And I think it's great timing because, you know, we talked last time about the spatial processing of uh, proprioceptive information. And today we will do the same complementary question, which is the temporal processing of multimodal proprioceptive inputs. But before we go to your really fascinating study, let me start with a big picture question that you really address, which is one of the key functions of the nervous system is in fact to generate timing and simultaneity. And uh, when you see or hear, for example, a red car zooming by in front of you, your brain knows that the sound you hear, the movement of the car, the car itself, and also the color all belong together and occur together. And if you smell the exhaust, you also know that this belongs to the car. Yet, as simple as it might sound, this simultaneous multimodal perception requires precise temporal processing and it needs to be very flexible and probably also involves learning. Now, this general task is highly complex because the temporal and the spatial processing of the sound, the movement, the odor, and the color are not the same. And it occurs in different areas and also at different times. Yet we take this temp complex task of the brain for granted and are not even aware that timing had to be created by the brain. And to study this in humans, and as you can imagine, any vertebrate brain is very difficult since different brain areas are involved, distributed and coordinated and created to generate this perceived simultaneity. Now, this question we're talking about is sometimes referred to as the binding problem. And this problem has important clinical implications. And we know that a variety of clinical conditions uh, have disturbed temporal processing. This is known for autism, for schizophrenia. And in fact, for schizophrenia, it has been shown that there's disturbed temporal proprioceptive processing. And if there's disparity in the processing, it's called synesthesia. And basically sensory modalities become asynchronous or become delayed. And, and that has many, many clinical problems. So how it works is really largely elusive. And in fact, insects have been studied in the past and have been really great model system. I know the work from Bertolt uh, Hedwig, uh, who studied directional hearing and cricket song pattern recognition. Then there's beautiful work done in Bart Owls, like Catherine Carr, and I think you cite this in your paper. Now, you study this now in proprioception, uh, in the context of proprioception insects, which of course is highly elegant because you can address this fundamental question because you have different types of proprioceptors with different types of information that has to be coordinated in order to generate that locomotion. And then these animals have not only four legs, they have six legs and they have to avoid that they fall from a tree. So I think it's a really fascinating question. And um, now what surprised me when I read your study is that you find temporal disparity. And why don't you start by telling us 
what you found with respect to movement and load information. First of all, thanks for having us again. It's great discussing this, these things with you. Um, so in this paper, the, the main message I would say is that we find that load and movement signals are not synchronized by the network, but actually that there's a consistent temporal, we call it temporal offset. So um, there's a delay of load signals relative to movement feedback um, that persists throughout the network. So from the sensory inputs through the pre-motor network into the motor output, um, actually also into muscle force development. And yeah, we were just as surprised as you were um, when we found this. So we were expecting some differences, but not consistently um, across different types of company forms and scylla, so the load sensors, um, and also so consistent delays throughout the entire network that was as surprising to us as to you. Yeah, you know, if I may add, you, well, you had did invertebrate research um, earlier on, and and we both recall the studies on the locus from the 80s by the beautiful studies by Hustad, Boyne Flüger, and Hustad essentially showing all the sort of um, all the different sense organs on the leg projecting to the central nervous system. And essentially then also coming up with the idea that the location of a sense organ on the leg of on the exoskeleton on, on the leg of the insect may mean that essentially the information that comes from sense organs closer to the body is faster as the one further away. And that's a bit of a bit like it had been developed to a dogma in a sense. And, and that was surprising to us in the next step because the fact that TBR company forms and Scylla are late, that you may say, okay, that's fine because the axon diameter is smaller and so forth and blah, blah, and it's non-myelinated. But the fact that load sensors at the level of the movement sensor at the same sort of distance to the central nervous system also has that delay actually does not exclude that they may be faster ones, but it takes away the generality of our earlier thinking that what's closer to the body will have an advantage and not an offset as Corinna nicely termed it. That also goes into the direction of the, the binding problem you mentioned earlier, because, I mean, there might be different or there are probably different solutions to that problem in different systems or different areas of the nervous system. But in our case, it raises the question, question of whether the network even needs to be synchronous or whether this delay is kind of like the whole point of this might be that there is a delay of load relative to movement feedback because it could be avoided. So you could, like with physiological means, increase the speed of a signal to have them arrive at the same time or pass the network at the same time. So it might be that this is actually how the network solves the binding problem for itself. Yeah, I think, Corinna, that's really an important point. And, and Ansgar, also the point with, with this uh, Breunig, Pflüger and Huster paper, I, I still remember it. It's the, the classic. But I also agree that this has been done on purpose. So it's not just like, oh, yeah, uh, failure to to synchronize because they have to coordinate. It's, it's still a hugely complex task because you have different receptors on different parts of the leg and different distances. So it's, it's highly complex still. Yeah, because actually when, when Corinna and me were talking about things that are important also in looking for the consequences of our finding, we, we need to take into account though that when you think about force, and how, it, um, how the sensory signal about force in the Campanis form sensilla develops. Then it's important to note that essentially when you have a leg hanging in the air, that's a completely different story to have a leg on the ground where a force is building up 
And the movement comes later only when the force is big enough to move the leg or the animal. So I think what, what, these off, what this offset, the existence of the offset means for a leg free in the air, which is what one can call a non-resisted leg, there it has a strong, mean, a, a big meaning because essentially ac movements or activation of muscles that immediately need to lead to movements because of the light weight of the leg will essentially mean that the movement feedback comes in with this offset positively towards force. But when you are on the ground, the story may be different. And we may come back to this when you, uh, the nice question in the end saying, what's next? Yes. Maybe. What do you Sorry. want to add? Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. want to add something. So um, the, I think one important point is also that in our paper, which is, we give stimuli to the leg that doesn't perceive at that moment before we stimulate any sensory input. I mean, apart from the, like the resting, whatever is there, uh, where we're not doing anything. But I think the situation when the leg is on the ground is also that in the, the like the first moment of touching the ground, um, the force builds up, but then there's a continuous change of both movement and load feedback to the system. So it's not like there. So it's not always the situation of going from no input to starting the input and having there the shift of like when this input hits the system, but also this continuously changing feedback from the two types of sensors is also shifted in time relative to each other. So even when the leg would be moving on the ground or forces would change, movement feedback would change. This is always apparently, if it's consistent also in the walking leg, um, which we haven't tested yet. But then it would also mean that there, the, the entire like transient signals, they would also be offset from each other. Um, and I think that's a very interesting situation. Yeah, and Corinna, I think maybe also for the reader, we have to emphasize that you studied this really in a standing animal. And so now, of course, the situation comes very complicated if you have these reflex reversals and uh, uh, during walking. And the question is, how does the ha animal handle this? Or can you predict what, what will happen when you're starting to, to walk? So envision a leg sort of moving through stance phase. Then you essentially have to, the leg has to propel the body along the, the, the surface. To the muscles are generating forces that will activate campaniforms and cilla. And for this kind of activation, which one calls resisted movement because there's a mechanical coupling between the leg at the ground and the body, then in that sense, the offset may be different but we don't know whether it disappears completely. This is important to say because the offset is still, is as simple as this, it's there, full stop. So, however, when the leg is in swing, then number one, there will be little force feedback, but as soon as the leg hits any obstacle or any, any sort of obstacle in the way of the path during the swing, then there will be movement information coming in. And as long as the, this mechanical touch of an object is not keeping the leg at a given place, but just changes the, the path, then the offset will play a role because then the movement feedback about that situation is faster than the load. Okay, I get it. Okay, so that, yeah. there, there's basically dynamic yeah. generated by the movement itself and, and yeah. therefore the information will be dynamically processed mm -hmm. as the animal is moving. So... Yeah. My question is now, how does it affect uh, when you have different speeds? You know, let's say a cockroach running around versus a, a, a stick insect. You know, I mean, the delay is generated by the morphology, correct? By the, by the distance. Will this become a problem? Or do you think they, 
the cockroach has other strategies to overcome it and shuts down that say proprioception. Um, that's a very like it's a very interesting question. Um, one point I want to mention is that it was not only the distance of the sense organs, but also the the network connectivity. Um, so that also imposed delays, and those were also in favor of the movement feedback. And so, of course, the the connectivity of load and movement um, inputs to the cockroach network might be different, um, and also. So we don't know whether um, the speed is different. So it could be feasible. It's like it's not impossible that the speeds um, are matched. So it's not at a, like the limit of a system yet. Even in the slow walking stick insect, like they could be matched. So if I would have to guess, I would think that there are probably also differences because with the slow walking stick insect, even there. Um, Maybe one can turn the question around, like the stick insect is so slow, there should be enough time to synchronize signals. So that rather in the cockroach, I might expect that there's some asynchronous signals because everything's moving so fast and there's little time to overcome. But you could, in the stick insect, you could even delay the movement signals so that they arrive in time with a slower load signal or something like that. So like wild guessing, but I would expect something like that in the cockroach, but we don't know. Um, but it's a very interesting question. Someone should do it. Yeah, I think it becomes also interesting if you think about this finding as a fundamental concept, which as a concept is novel. You know, like everybody thinks, hey, you have to, to synchronize, yet you find it doesn't synchronize. And you find that it is actually behaviorally meaningful because, you know, the load information and the movement information doesn't have to be together to make sense. So, so I think conceptually it's surprising and but it could be fundamental and 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 i think that's why we should really look it further so hanska yeah i think you're getting right at the at the challenge that we are facing with, with these findings because when you think about motor control and, and you know as me we often tend to take the sensory feedback which can support the overall activity initiated or regulated we always take the different kinds of sensory feedback that come from some spatial close by location on the animal. We take, even if these are different sensors, we take their information mostly as granted to be on time and all at the same time coming in. What essentially our finding shows is, and that goes even beyond, is this offset that Corinna has described between movement and, and force that will extend between force sense organs along the leg and even between force sense organs close to the animal as they might do for movement. So essentially what we are opening up, it's a bit like a, like a portfolio of, um, of offsets that were not included in the thinking about feedback control of movements because there we always thought when the phase of a movement is started, the regulating sensory feedback will be okay or sort of proper. And I think uh, that that leads to this question of robotics, you know, because I mean, you build robotics and the robots need to have sensory feedback. And I think we all assume that it's temporarily generated in time or in, in the same time, but maybe it doesn't have to. And I think, you know, what are the implications now for robotics with your findings? And, and also vice versa, can you use robotics to test your hypothesis, you know, like where you can now play with the delay of load versus movement signals experimentally? 
Maybe I can start on the, the second part of the question and then Ansgar can do the hard part. <laughs> so I think the, the, the question of what robotics can do for, for this question is, I mean, that's like the perfect thing to test in a robot, at least, at least to my like naive robotics view, like shift the temporal aspects of signals and see what happens if you have a more or less naturalistic robot leg for example and you shift the movement feedback in time relative to the load feedback see what happens um if then you kind of postpone the load feedback a bit whether that improves things or whether there some things different things happen or whether how this affects something like uh, the force generation of the not in the case of the robot the muscles but the the actuators and so i think for this if you want to a bit want to play around a bit um, with this, I think the, the robotics could be a good way to go and test different ideas of whether it's necessary to have this delay or whether it's just some, some artifacts we're describing you. Yeah. I know that you collaborate with Sasha Zill, correct? And, and they, they have that robot. Did they actually test this or, or no. basically did they just assume, like we all did, that there's no disparity? Um, at the moment, as far as I know, it's not built in. in this Drosophy bot that, that he's working on together with Nick Tuchinsky and, and, and colleagues. And I think what we, you can test it on a robot. That's all, all good and fine. But given that the findings also have relevance for the actively moving animal or walking animal, what it means that we may reconsider the thinking about induction of phases and keeping phase. Because, and that may bring us back to, to old discussions on sort of, essentially, you know this from the 80s almost, like what's the role essentially of, of sensory feedback in inducing a specific phase switch and or to keep it. So, so it may not, it may all be fine in the end, but I think one needs to take into account that the natural system may have different dynamic properties with respect to the specific phase of the locomotor cycle that the sensory information can be used. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. Ansgar, mm -hmm. there was another part that I find kind of astonishing here because let's say when, when you look at the wing beat of a locust flight, you know, where uh, the tegular is supposed to trigger mm -hmm. the wing elevation or something like this. So, so there you have a very specific connectivity. Okay. So yeah, basically yeah. the tegula activates your 566 that then causes part of your elevation. Now, in this case, what I found really dramatic and cool that you find it's actually the same non-spiking interneurons mm -hmm. that process these different information that arrive in different times. So you don't have a separation in the connectivity, correct? Mm -mm. Yeah. This what is... we do have, sorry. Go ahead. So what, go ahead what, what we do have, um, and that's one point that would be interesting to kind of go into in the future, is that we have different functional connectivity. So of course, the, the actual connectivity in the system doesn't change. It's that's how it's built or whatever grown. But what we find is that in different sensory contexts, so depending on where the load hits or which load sensors are activated and which type of movement stimulus we give, different types of non-spikers are, so to say, the first in line to receive this input. And we're currently still working on the intent connectivity between the non-spikers, but um, it seems to be that there are quite some connections between them. And that could indicate that depending on where in this distributed network the sensory input comes in, it will then pass through different non-spikers in a different order than when it, it would come in from another sensory source like another load sensor 
So that could using the same network and in principle having one distributed network processing all this, these inputs, it could mean that depending on where this input then comes in, it will pass through different, so to say, computations in different orders, and that could change the output of the system. So I think that's a very, like for me, it's a very cool thing to explore. I hope, uh, I hope we'll get there at some at some point because I think this this non-spiking network as it is it must make sense somehow of these of these different inputs, even if they are all distributed into it. And I think that the order of computations or whether like the function connectivity, how this um, matters, that's an, a very interesting point. But Karina, of course, I get goosebumps when you say that because I know how hard it is. You know, I mean, it, you, you don't record from a SOMA, you record from the dendrites. And then also you have spatial differences, correct? Within a non-spiking interneuron. So, so basically the information, the different temporal information could be processed even in different parts of the interneuron. I mean, I don't, I don't want to speculate, but I mean, do you think optical imaging could help you there? Because I, I find it really hard to think that you want to tackle this with electrophysiology alone. I mean, I hope Ansgar won't suggest to put more than two electrodes into the system because then at some point it will... <laughs> There's only so much space, even in a very large stick insect. But I think the um, the optical imaging, especially of different like branches um, or at least the major branches of a non-spiker, that would give us so much information about how this how like a single non-spiker already is a computational unit or several computational units in itself. And I think that would be a great way. To, to actually see more about the system. And I think it's not impossible that this will at some point work in the stick insect as well. Um, so yeah, far- but, but then also, I mean, the more and more people are working on the Drosophila and the Drosophila, mm -hmm. you have much smaller sizes. And, and so the, I think that G-Camp or voltage changes could become you know, the answer where, where you will actually address this important, really important question. So one more thing. Oh, so Ansgar, you want to say something, but maybe also address the, the, the differential processing of inhibitory and excitatory information. I think you, you also looked at that, and I think it will be interesting to see. So I think the, ex exactly the question you are posing, Nino, is because when you know sort of what we know about, and, and Corinna touched upon that, on the processing of this layer of pre-motor interneurons, the idea is actually that they more or less, because of the non-spiking and the sort of rather compact appearing shape they may be homogeneously um, driven by synaptic inputs but there's also contradictory results and you recall the work by Gilleron on, on locus non-spikers showing that essentially there's evidence for the one branch not knowing what the other does because of a current sink that links them okay but and I think you are posed exactly the right question number one is optical imaging will do essentially allow us to study this and to do that pro sort of professionally on large scale sort of populations of neurons, Drosophila will be actually the, the place to go. Also with one important question that Corinna had, that a finding of evidence that Corinna collected in the study, and this is that essentially the question is sort of when we do have a pre-motor level, a pre-motor network of non-spike interneurons, it's apparently the case that these are not on one level, but that they're essentially subgroups which are, if one talks about latency or processing time, which are closer or further away from the output, which is the modeling. And that would mean that it would be highly interesting to know sort of what the portfolio of sensory input to a single given, and I know this is damn hard work, but <laughs> to a single given pre-motor interneuron, 
that is, for example, um, supporting stance phase motor output is in, as a complete picture. And EM data on, on Drosophila may give rise to that if we know for the, the right neurons to check, for example, like combining um, sort of light microscopy and EM data. So I, I, you are completely right. The, the questions which are coming up from this um, study, you cannot just go on with doing single electrodes um, mm putting them into one neuron, even though it's difficult. Yeah, of course, Maybe Anske, as can... long as you attract uh, graduate students like Corinna, I mean, <laughs> you're, you're in safe, safe rhyme. So Corinna, you wanted to say something. Sorry. I, um, I think yeah, I... just a, a quick addition. Um, so the what, what Ansgar mentioned with the different layers of the non-spikers, there was a hot topic that we discussed quite a lot in our meetings. And he always wanted me to check whether I can find, um, once we found that, they're, that it's not like one layer, whether I could sort them into different layers. Also for the publication, we thought it would be nice to have like a schematic figure showing the different layers. And I tried and I tried on the really large paper, <laughs> like my office looked like a mess and it didn't work because the, the only thing that we could actually divide them into or the only context we could divide them into was when we looked at the different functional connectivities. So the different sensory contexts, then you can divide them actually into layers, but they're all mixed up again in the next sensory context. So that's how or why I kind of started thinking about this as a like one large, like you roll the sensory input into one kind of pot um, and where the non-spikers are or the, or the premotor network is distributed in. And then it's not one layer or se several layers, but really an interconnected network where you can't really, if you want to like on paper draw layers, you can't really do it. Um, at least we haven't found the context yet where they sort themselves into layers that are really consistent across different types of input. Um, yeah, Corinna, and I think, and I think it's, it's another maybe part of a preconceived idea that you have different layers and hierarchies within this processing network, but maybe you don't. I mean, if you think about the brainstem and, and the reticular formation, you know, maybe this is uh, because we're like cortex centric people that, that have all these layers that, that we think like this, but maybe it's not like this. So Ansgar, sorry. Yeah. And, it, and I think what you are touching upon, Nino, is actually one of the, what I presently consider as challenging dogmas, but not challenging the dogma, but challenging dogma on how we think about even what we consider um, rather simple networks. And this may be driven by history of, of findings in invertebrates and probably the same line you can do in vertebrates because you start out with simple sensory motor connections by finding direct connections from sense organs to motor neurons. The next step was to say, oh, how is this sign inverted? So we found midline group neurons were found in the locus. And this is a super work by, by the lab of Malcolm Burroughs, his um, colleagues and, and, and scholars. But all in all, what came up was the, based on the idea that we have a feed-forward system mostly, where we disentangle more and more individual levels that serve one-to-one -one connections within the net. However, we did never sort of, was never, the question was never turned upside down in a way of what connections are there that do not fit the expected outcome, but that fit the network organization or that essentially guide the network organization. So in the end, I, I think we all agree that direct connections serve a good purpose in a standing animal for a fast reflex. That's it. But as soon as you have to process multimodal information, then we are back to Corinna's findings um, from a previous study that essentially then this simple idea of what I see and what do I need for it 
will not come together as a biological solution anymore. Yeah. You know, Ansgar, <laughs> we, we, we had yesterday another uh, podcast, and I, I really refer also the listener to this podcast where we talked about understanding and explanation in yeah. neuroscience. And, and one of the danger of understanding often is that you think you understand and you solved a problem, but when you look deeper, you realize you did not understand it. And I think uh, we all assumed, okay, they will, they will deal with the temporal processing and all the robots were generated like this, but really they deal with this, but in an unexpected way. And I think that makes this study really very important. And uh, my, Another aspect I think that we have really discussed is you have these different types of motor neurons, correct? So we, we talk about motor neurons as, okay, they're the same, but you know you have the FEDI, the SETI, that, that all process information also differently on themselves. Did, did you try to dissect this and, and, and find about this? So we um, actually looked at the, so the, the extensor motor neurons quite extensively, um, especially the, the slow and fast extensor. And what we found, and there was, I mean, to me, it was surprising when we read into the literature, um, we found that it's actually apparently not super, um, like it was also found in the locust and the, the actually Drosophila, that the company from Sancillar, the tibial ones, connect directly to the fast motor neuron, but not to the slow motor neuron. And that was as I said, so to me, this entire study was surprising. So um, <laughs> I was surprised by everything in here. But in general, that that has, because it is apparently um, something that is also happening in locusts and also in Drosophila, at least for there, it's the flexor motor neurons. Um, I think it might be a, a, some, some sort of common principle um, because these insects have very different behaviors and also the muscles that were analyzed or looked at are involved in widely different types of behavior. So especially the locust, the, the flexor is used for jumping, which that stick insect, no stick insect jumps, or at least ours don't. Um, the, then Drosophila again has a completely different set of behaviors. There's some overlap, but there's also very different specifications. And I think the direct connection to the fast motor neurons, that might be something um, that is apparently common across animals or insect species. And so that was a very interesting finding. Yeah, I mean, th this, is, this is also now, of course, leading to the question of what if we go to vertebrates and, and start really dissecting the timing between loading versus movement signals? And, and has this been done? And, and, and what would you expect? Surprises too? I, I looked around. I didn't see any, any, any study like this on that. I'm, I don't think so. Actually, I don't think there is a study on looking at um, at the same time, that what you would have to do is sort of study one B afferent activity to uh, to force changes together with a muscle spindle of the same muscle, and I'm I'm not aware of of that dissection uh, being already done. Um, yeah, not even I, I can see already. You know, vertebrate scientists dismissing this insect finding as oh yeah, these insects. They're too dumb to, to, to generate simultaneity or, oh, that's an exception. You know, I remember, I mean, like when they found these intrinsic bursting properties, they said, oh, my God, the insects have to do that or invertebrates have to do that. And this was, yeah. we had a comment of a colleague um, um, initially that we, we, we showed the data or Corinna showed the data. And, and, and he said, well, look, it's a beautiful 
to the force of methods and what you show, but how likely is it for large or small animals, animals with myelinated axons without? That's not the point. <laughs> That's exactly not the point because it may not matter whether it's 10 milliseconds or 2 milliseconds or 20 milliseconds. The fact is that the synchronicity is maybe an obsolete idea. So you see what I mean? <laughs> and and I, I know that what one should sort of go for general findings. It's all good and fine with me. But to 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 question the size of the animal um, as sort of a specializing or whatever um, sort of sub-factor for a study, I think one has to, as, as Corinna earlier on did, we have to sort of twist the question or put it upside down and say, okay, what does it mean for the fruit fly if it's like this? Is Does it matter? Isn't it mattering? And and then we immediately come to questions that we don't know in the fruit fly at the moment on, on the physiology. And and we may also ask a question, what about a, a mouse compared to the cat compared to a horse? Um, if I may I interrupt at that point? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so one thing so that I don't forget, I, th I think that Drosophila would be like, if I could make a wish, someone should do this in Drosophila. Because, I mean, it's widely complicated, but um, the like because in Drosophila it's so small and so compact that you wouldn't essentially you could do things more or less immediately you don't need significant delays in there the, the system is so small everything could be more or less instantly um, so if we find these differences also in Drosophila then that for me is the like the perfect point proving that this is something really relevant for the system because in Drosophila it's like it's compact enough to be synchronous and to what Anka just said with the, um, the different sizes, there's actually, I, I found this recently, um, a paper by Moore and Donlan from, I think, 2018, about scaling of sensory motor delays um, in different terrestrial animals. And I find that actually, um, so some, some things don't scale or some delays don't scale. Um, they remain the same, whether you look at, I think they compare the shrew and the elephant. Um, but they are actually the, the conduction delays across nerves. And those scale with the animal. I think that's a good, I mean, it doesn't show the difference between load and movement, but it does imply that there are some things that even in vertebrates or even in mammals where you have this compared to insects, super fast transmission of signals, that even there, um, the distance or the size um, and the conduction velocity um, does matter. And that maybe it's even important for vertebrates, even though it's I mean, you know, I mean, of course, we know, I mean, in vertebrates that because you have the cerebellum, you have the different areas of the brain that that you are actually producing in your leg a prediction of what the movement will be and what the movement is at this current time. So, I mean, there is a lot of knowledge about how how you actually encode the future versus, you know, the present and you have these different different copies etc and different copies so i think there's a lot of processing going on in different mm -hmm. areas and and i think you you have also the the situation where the motor cortex actually you know they call it these pyramidal neurons motor neurons even though they're mm -hmm. really not motor neurons but there's a lot of this information done but i think this disparity that you find mm -hmm. uh, um, at the level of of your your spinal cord the ventral cord is is uh it's still surprising and to see whether you know you you have something like this also that invertebrates would be really interesting mm -hmm. and uh and, and something for the follow-up uh now to what extent do you think the exoskeleton plays also a role you know because in a way isn't it also like a high pass filter or, or something where slow versus fast will be buffered or you think that plays no role uh, i think um the the exoskeleton the interesting point is here that it 
probably affects the company from Sensilla more than the FCO because the, the movement sensor, the femocototonal organ, that sits within or in parallel to the muscle, so inside of the exoskeleton, while the exoskeleton properties maybe more affect the company from Sensilla, which are caps embedded into this exoskeleton. So I would think um, that any sort of elastic or non-elastic properties of the cuticle will probably delay or might delay the load signals even further, um, while movement signals are not there based on the joint movement, um, which might not be as affected by the exoskeleton. So I think um, that's a very good point, um, which in our study we have not um, integrated into. Um, well, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. There's definitely to be expected that you have, um, that you, for example, and as Corinna said, we don't need to talk about the movement sensors, but for the, for the company from Sensilla, they will definitely be affected because of the mechanical coupling along the leg. I would, I think it's a complex question to, to envision a simple answer to your question, meaning is it a damping or not? Because you, it's not a stick what you have or not a, not a tube because they said you have the joints, you have the joint membranes, you have a lot of damping coming in there. And, and so you have no firm axis that, that mm -hmm. uh, connects two segments. So, so I think I'd, I cannot answer this question at the moment. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's definitely an interesting question, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. A stick insect. So a uh, quick question. And also, you know, when I looked at your plots, there's a lot of scatter and, and, and how did you deal with individual variability? Do you think that there is variability from step to step and how is this processed? You know, is this part, is this uh, on purpose? You know, is, is the, the animal kind of trying a movement and it's each time differently or something? So, yeah, I, um, so the scatter is a good point. Um, I, I personally was a bit worried about that at first when I looked at the data at first, but then we realized that the scatter is in the indirect connections. So um, I guess that's one of the plots where you're referring to whether the essentially the, the timing of the inputs or the delay of the inputs to the non-spikers and the motor neurons is shown. And this the scatter is in the indirect connections, but those that are fast, those are more or less, so uh, we drew this kind of suggestive line into this plot to show where we set the, the kind of boundary of what we expect of a direct connection or a monosynaptic connection to be and what we expect to be a polysynaptic connection from the time lag um, side. And the, the ones that fell under this boundary, so into the monosynaptic region, those weren't as scattered. So th there we could, um, so the, we also show the mean in there, that is kind of concise. And that to me makes perfect sense to have more variability in the polysynaptic connection because there it's just, you have more, more time, but also more elements potentially involved in changing the delay. If you have more neurons in between then every neuron in itself by whatever activity level it just has in that moment when the input comes in might change the delay. So yes, we do have that scatter um, and I can't completely explain it, but I'm kind of we, convinced that it's the polysynaptic so that it, you have more, more variability because you have more elements um, involved in these signals. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we may add that we did, we did test on this very sort of principal question, short latency, long latency, but we did not test on the correlation between latencies 
amplitude and latency and variability. Because what you are asking for essentially, uh, and what Corinna and, and our data are suggestion, suggesting at the moment is that essentially you would find a positive correlation with uh, latency and variability, between latency uh -huh. and variability. And we should check on that. But that's a good point. So we should, and we have the data, so we mm -hmm. could do that. Fantastic. You know, uh, Ansgar, you, you already anticipated that question, you know, what are the next steps? And I think we talked about, you know, moving animals and uh, what, what are your plans? And, and Corinna, what would you do when you come back to Cologne? <laughs> so for me, um, I've mentioned it before, I think this network thing. So um, before I left Cologne, um, I was doing double intracellular recordings, um, which one of them or, um, is also in this paper. Um, because we wanted to find out the connectivity of this network. So actually, like um, moving the, the binding problem to actually this, this network of non-tracking intelligence, how are they talking to each other? What do they know of each other's activity? And I think there's so much in this network that we kind of let our signals pass through and then try to make sense of it. But I think it's important um, in the next step to find out how this network actually works with itself or how it's connected, how the, the non-spikers are affecting each, in each other, and then how this leads to one certain input leading to a certain motor output. So that would be my, <laughs> my personal thing. Of course, now you work on, uh, you work on Drosophila, correct? And, and, and so you right. might bring all that experience back. Yeah. And... <laughs> one question actually goes back to the beginning of our conversation, and that actually came also as an important aspect when discussing with Sasha Sil that you already mentioned initially in the beginning, is that um, what we show here is essentially the plane one could call sort of the map, and the map in offsets and so forth. The question is what happens when you do have force generation to induce company forms and Silla activity and combine it with movement. I think um, that would ask for the, um, for example, to bring together active muscle contractions against torque, sort of torque stimuli, which are much better than just mechanical uh, deformations of the cuticle. And then combine that with recording of the, of the campaniforms and cell activity to see essentially what the dynamics in an active contracting muscle in the leg may change on the offset, whether this is a relevant factor or not. It will only give us always a small piece of evidence, but, but I, I think that would, be, that would be very interesting. And um, to play with offset against sensory information in a rhythmic preparation. And, and this is what um, I'm currently discussing with Corinna and what sort of in order to, because we are still in writing up um, other um, very interesting results of her work. Um, and so we sometimes discuss what would be an interesting next experiment to, to link this to essentially what you are also, were also getting at in the first question. What about locomotion? What about the active moving animal? How relevant is that? How relevant is that? And, and can you assess the influence? Yeah, and whether, you know, like you have something like uh, gate switches where, yeah. you yeah. know, like at, at faster speed, you just don't, don't care about this temporal processing. And, and, and you know... Yeah. This is actually one thing which I think we touched upon it at some other time is that there's still no, there's still no good solution to, to the fact that what's, what's different from slow locomotion to fast locomotion 
is it also, we know that the evidence suggests that sensory feedback is not as relevant in fast locomotion, that this way might be much more predictive, and this is also nicely fitting with biomechanical ideas and dynamics, and is it different in slow? But I, I'm actually, um, the pet hypothesis currently is that you have recoupling that essentially is changing when it goes from slow to fast, and this is what data on Drosophila suggests for us that, that we published. But um, I, I think your question is not yet resolved in a way that one can make a, a, a hook on it and say, okay, let's, let's forget about it. Especially if you put someone like Corinna on that project, you yeah, get your surprises, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> she will kill the dogma. <laughs> <laughs> good sign. It's My a dogma. good sign. <laughs> so take home messages. Do, do you want to summarize something for, for the listener, basically, going forward? Um, so for me, it's maybe synchronous is not what the system is actually aiming for. Um, maybe that's uh, like us humans, we like it ordered and everything at the same time. But maybe that's not what the nervous system is actually caring about or what it needs to um, compute different types of input. Yeah. yeah, and all the time. You know, it's not like a given that you have to create that simultaneity. Yeah, and I, I think, and, and, and that goes also back take home message, maybe that the internal organization of the network, that's actually what we need to understand for any given task of the, of the, of the neural system in order to understand um, how the principle setup for, that we have shown here is embedded into the function in different tasks. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think uh, it was wonderful to talk to you about this temporal processing. And I think it's, it's also cool to, to remember that this temporal processing has to happen at the same time with the spatial processing that we discussed last time. And that uh, all this together then makes the movement. And uh, I mean, it's a fascinating animal model system. And, and I can see that Ansgar, why you spend so much time on the stick insect, you know, so it's cool. Okay, everybody, all the very best. Stay healthy and uh, thank you so much. And, and Corinna, looking forward to your next 10 papers. Okay. Thank you for inviting us. <laughs> okay, no pressure. Bye -bye. Thank you for inviting Bye. us, Nino. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.